So today we continue our study of the book of Daniel with Daniel chapter 5. Um, the text is quite long. It's 31 verses. We need the whole text because we need the whole story. Um, but like I said, it's 31 verses, and for whatever reason, the, the verses in this chapter are really long also. <laughs> so each of these 31 verses takes a long time to read. So rather than read the entire text at the beginning and then study it, I'm going to read it as we go through. Um, so I would encourage you, if you have access to a Bible, or if you don't, you can grab one from the back. I believe there are a couple still sitting there. Um, just to follow along with the text as we study it today. We're going to walk through it, try to get all of the pieces of what we see in this famous story um, that many of you probably have at least heard of before, the writing on the wall. Uh, Before we get into the text, uh, I want to give this a little bit of context because we have made a pretty significant shift in the history of the exile in Babylon. Uh, If you've been tracking with us through this series up to this point, the first four chapters, we've been dealing primarily with Daniel and his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. Just to give this some historical context, uh, the Jews went into Babylonian captivity in 605 BC. Uh, the text that we read last week, chapter 4 of Daniel, where, um, where Nebuchadnezzar has a, another dream and then is sent out into the fields to live like an ox, that all happened probably about the year four, excuse me, 570, so 35 years after the Jews went into Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, ruled until 562, so eight more years after that. And then after Nebuchadnezzar, there were a number of kings, there were some assassinations and all sorts of crazy uh, things that happened, until we get to this point where we pick up the text, uh, chapter 5 of Daniel, which is the year 539 B.C., and we're going to get introduced to a new king who is on the throne. His name is Belshazzar. Um, so we, we're moving past this sort of introductory era for uh, the Israelites in Babylonian captivity, and now we're getting closer to the end. In fact, in this text, we're going to see the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel, by this point, is probably about 75 years old, uh, so he's getting to be an old man. No offense to those of you who are 75 or older. So let's dive into the text. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, could drink, uh, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's stop right there. So this, this uh, st- starts with a, uh, this scene starts with a huge party. Now, to understand what's going on with this party, uh, it's probably good to know what's going on behind the scenes. About a week or two before this party by Belshazzar is thrown on October 11th of 539 BC, uh, the Babylonians find out that the medio persian Empire has set up shop right outside of Babylon. And as a result, the people are very concerned. Right? Uh, they're not exactly sure what's going to happen, whether it's going to be that the, the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and completely destroys them, or it's going to be the case that uh, they come and take over and make them a vassal state. Um, in general, people are pretty worried at this point, and so what is the most logical thing to do when it is likely that your kingdom is going to be conquered? Throw a party, right? Uh, We're going to get as much wine as we can get our hands on, as many women as we can get our hands on, and we are going to party like it's 539 BC. That's what Belshazzar thought would be the wisest thing to do at this point. Um, And and from our perspective, looking back at this, we, we think, how foolish of him. 
right? Like there are a thousand other things you could have done given the situation rather than throw a massive party. But I think there's actually something really important for us to learn about not only Babylon in the sixth century BC, but also our culture and how we deal uh, with life as we know it. Um, I'm gonna need you to fast uh, click through the slides for me for whatever reason, this isn't connecting for me. So if you would go to the slide that comes right after verse four of the text. That'd be great, thank you. And what every one of them are dealing with at this point as they're at this party is the reality that life as they know it is about to end, right? Whether it's going to be that the kingdom is conquered or the kingdom becomes a vassal state, life as they know it is, be- is going to end. Um, and so they pursue all sorts of things that seem foolish, but once we actually pull the veil back a little bit, we, we start to realize these are the same things that we deal with in our life today. Because even though there isn't a nation who's standing on our doorstep uh, challenging our nation, we do all have the sense that life as we know it is about to end. Uh, we would call it death, right? For those of us who are a little bit older, we're staring death in the face. A decade more we might have on this earth. Um, for those of us who are younger, we like to think we have a few more decades until death comes, although it only takes an accident to remind us how fragile life can be. We all have this sense that life as we know it is going to end. And so what we tend to pursue are not the things of God, because we want to hide from that reality. But really, what are these, these Babylonians doing as the, the medial Persian Empire is on their doorstep? They're hiding from the reality that life is going to change. Now, I think we see a couple different ways that they try to escape the reality that life is going to change for them, that life as they know it is going to end. Uh, and we'll pull apart each of these. Now, the first of those, if you can put it up for me, is that they pursue their feelings. And what happens at this party? Uh, There's a whole bunch of drinking. That's very obvious from the text. I think we can at least infer that there's probably a whole bunch of illicit sex also happening, and who knows what other types of debauchery are happening. Uh, They decided the best way to pursue their feelings is by pursuing pleasure. And you can see a parallel to our society today. The rampant consumption of alcohol as an escape from the problems of our world or any other substance that gives a similar feeling of high, or the obsession that our culture has with sex, whether it's extramarital sex or pornography, which, by the way, the statistics now say that there is less and less extramarital sex that's happening in our society, but that's because there is a meteoric rise in the use of pornography. Sex is so much part of our culture, we just don't see it all the time because it's done in the privacy of our own homes, on our phones and our computers. They pursued pleasure. Now, I'm guessing that maybe not all of you are struggling with alcoholism or drunkenness regularly or extramarital sex or pornography, although I'm sure there are some of you in the room. For those of us who maybe don't struggle with those things, we still have the same problem. We chase after whatever makes us feel good, right? It might not be pornography or drunkenness, but it might be a form of entertainment. Right? We, we need to feel good at the end of the day, and so we, we watch a show that we love, or, or we do some activity that makes us feel good. We're obsessed with feeling good. If I may confess a little bit to you, I struggle with this personally, that sometimes at the end of the day, I just feel like I haven't had any fun in the day, which is not true. Like, I have a great family, I have a good job, and I'm happy with both. But for some reason, I feel like because I haven't done something fun, like my day isn't full, maybe you have a similar feeling sometimes. Like if we're not doing something entertaining, then we're not okay. 
And for some of us, that shows itself in, in really obvious ways. For some of us, it's just as subtle as I can't go to bed unless I, I watch my three hours of Netflix. Our society loves to escape the reality of life ending as we know it through pleasure. But for some of us, it might not be that. It might be comfort. Right? We pursue comfort. Not that I need to have some amazing experiences, that I need to get high, or, or I need to feel the rush of a sexual experience, but that I just want to be comfortable. I just want to be okay. I want to curate my life and get everything out of my life that makes me feel uncomfortable so that I could just be, well, just, I guess, placid, right? Sociologists have studied particularly how North Americans deal with suffering, and one of the things that just comes up time and time again is that despite living in the most comfortable place on the planet, North Americans, first of all, complain about being uncomfortable more than anybody else, and they are far less equipped to deal with discomfort when it comes. Like, we're soft because we love comfort. We want ourselves to feel okay rather than dealing with the reality that the life as we know it is going to change. But maybe that's not what it is for you. Or maybe that's not what you see in the culture. Another thing that we do to try to escape the reality of our impending doom, the end of our life as we know it, is we pursue accomplishments. You know, you think about uh, what Belshazzar is doing at this party. He, he could have just slept with a whole bunch of women on his own and drank himself silly on his own. He decides to grab a thousand of his nobles and get them into the room so that he can do that with them. <laughs> Uh, and we could argue about specifically the reasons why he does this, but uh, at the very least, we have to say he's posturing, right? He's trying to show to these nobles that he is a good king, that he has good things for them, that they should like him. And isn't that the way that many of us behave in the Babylon that we live in? We try to escape the reality that at the end of our life, frankly, if there's no God and no eternity, none of it matters anyways, by trying to accomplish a whole bunch of things. We try to have a life that looks perfect because we have enough money or enough success or enough reputation or enough friends. We have the perfect designer house that could be photographed on Instagram. The kids who behave the way we've trained them to behave. We curate our life so that we can look good so other people can like us. Or, if we can't really do that, like we don't have the resources to be, well, that perfect, Instagram perfect, we try to do something else. And I see this generally more in younger generations. We try to be unique. Like, we maybe can't buy the Bentley or the, the five-bedroom house, but, but we can have a super unique way of dressing or really unique perspectives on things or, or really unique music that we like. We can stand out in some way because we're obsessed with proving ourselves to the world. We're obsessed with showing ourselves to be good enough, even though the reality is that without God at the end of this life, well, eventually, no one will remember our names, and if the world were to just freeze in the death of the sun or burn up because of some sort of climate disaster, it wouldn't matter anyways because there'd be no human beings to remember anything at all. Yet we hide from that reality, don't we? By building up ourselves and our own reputation with our accomplishments. Maybe that's not it for you. Maybe the way that you try to escape the fact that life is going to end as you know it is through control. Um, it's notable that at the beginning of the text here, we hear that Belshazzar brings out the, the articles from the temple of God that Nebuchadnezzar had taken when he conquered Jerusalem, and he uses them to toast his friends and his wives and his concubines. Um, obviously, it's sacrilegious, but I, I think what we have to realize is Belshazzar here is, is asserting his own dominance over the gods. 
That's what he's trying to do, at least, to show that I am more powerful than any other nation's God. Again, when you realize that that, that very night, his, his kingdom is going to be destroyed and he is be going to be driven out, it makes no sense, but that's what he's asserting. He's asserting, I am in control. And isn't that what every one of us struggles with? We struggle with needing to control things, to control life around us, the people around us, the politics around us, the economy around us. We struggle, we want to control all of these things so that we can feel good. We fall to the same temptation that Satan gave when he told Adam and Eve, you could be like God. And maybe one of the ways that we do this, especially those of us who would call ourselves Christians, is is very specifically in the same way that Belshazzar did. That we take the things of God and we use them to build up ourselves. That we say, I can control God by doing these things. So if I'm regularly in church or I'm giving good offerings or I'm generally a pretty good person, well, then God will like me more. God will bless me more. We use the things of God to try to assert dominance over God. We don't realize the reality that God is ultimately in control of all these things. Do you see this? Babylon is happening right around us. And while it's not always a raucous party of drinking, debauchery, and sex, although it sometimes happens around here, doesn't it? Every one of us in some way is trying to escape from the reality that our life is going to end. We're hiding behind our feelings, we're hiding behind our comforts, pleasure, our accomplishments, or our control. Now, there's more that we're going to pull out of this, but let's keep moving on in the text and see what else we can find. While this is happening, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. So as, as Belshazzar comes now to this writing that has appeared on this wall, the, one of the most eerie scenes in the entire Bible, his first thought is, let's call in all of the enchanters, the diviners, uh, the astrologers. Let's call in the wise men of Babylon. Uh, who is he calling in? He's calling in the experts. Because this is how a culture that does not have a god over it tends to act. If we don't have a god that we can finally submit to, we'll take anybody who at least resembles a god in some way and we'll put them in the position of god. And so, what does the king of Babylon do? He doesn't call out to Marduk or Bel. Those gods are frankly symbolic to their culture. What he goes to is the actual humanist, secularist way that Babylon thought of things. The people who can solve the problems are the experts. And is that not the case also for us? How often when things go wrong in the world do we trot out the experts, trot out the PhDs, the psychiatrists, the climate experts, the whatever the expert is on whatever the problem is. We trot them out and they say, please tell us what's going on. Please interpret these things. Now one of the struggles that we have as we are Christians in this world and we see the exact same thing happening is on the one hand, we have a temptation to want to just totally ignore people like that. 
like to say, like, the experts, they don't know anything, right? Because they don't know God. Let's be careful about that, because that's not really true, right? These enchanters, these diviners, these astrologers, they truly were experts. I mean, remember, Babylon is the greatest nation that has existed on the face of the earth up to this point. You don't get to that point by being dumb. You know a lot of stuff. These are the most intelligent people who live on the planet right now. And the same thing is true for us. Like the experts that we have in our culture, they know a lot of things. They're really intelligent. They know way more about a whole lot of things than I do or you do. But they have a problem. They don't know God. They don't know part of the information necessary in order to make an analysis of any situation. To illustrate it, think of this. It's 1969, and the Americans have just landed on the moon. But you don't know that. And so someone comes up to you and says, has anyone ever walked on the moon? Which I suppose people don't start conversations like that, but bear with me. And you say, no, no one's ever walked on the moon. Are you lying at that point? In a sense, no, but in a sense, yes. But you're not intentionally lying, you're just ignorant. Or you're telling what you know, but you are ignorant of some of the facts of reality. And so in a sense, you are also lying. You're not telling the truth. There are things that are true and you are saying the opposite of them. You're not intentional. You're not malicious. You're not trying to deceive, but you are deceiving because you don't know everything. And this tends to be the flaw of the experts of our culture as well. While they might know more than any of us about any number of topics, they don't bring in God. They don't have all the information. And therefore, they necessarily are not telling the whole truth. They might be able to tell you part of the truth, but they can't tell you the whole truth. This is what was true of the diviners, astrologers, and and enchanters of Babylon. They couldn't figure out what God was doing. It's not because they weren't talented in languages. It wasn't because they hadn't seen miraculous things in their life. It's because they didn't know God. And so as we think about the, the experts of our society, let's have this assumption. They're deceiving us. Not intentionally, not maliciously in many cases, but they just don't know the whole truth and they can't possibly tell it to us unless they know God. Let me give you two really tangible examples of how this works so you can see it play out. First of all, uh, the experts of our society cannot get into the realm of morality. Right? So they can't get to a place of ultimate morality like you or I can because we know a God who is transcendent beyond this world. And therefore, since morality is not in the realm of science or psychology or, frankly, anything else, those experts have no authority to say you ought to do something, you really should do something, or you have to do something. They can't. They can give you their best guess, but when it comes to morality, they can't traverse into that area. And so, if a person says to you, you have to, you should, or you ought to, realize they're not operating with all of the information. Or how about the eternality of God? Right? The experts of our society look at the world, but they look at it as a self-contained thing that is bound in time. But you know that's not true. You know that God is eternal. You know that because he is eternal and he has promised you eternal life, you have a different perspective on things. That the things that matter to the people who only see their life as 70 or 80 years here on earth is different than yours. You know that life goes beyond this, that this isn't the end. This isn't all that matters. And so you have a different perspective. In the same way that Babylon's experts struggled, we also need to be conscious that in our Babylon, there will be people who are very intelligent who know a lot about a lot of stuff, but they aren't operating with all the information necessary to tell the whole truth. 
Daniel's different, though. And the queen, or maybe the queen mother, it's hard exactly to know who this woman is, she remembers. She remembers that Daniel was able to do this in the past, and so she tells Belshazzar, I'll uh, we'll look at the text again, the queen, hearing the voices of the kings and nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So Daniel is brought out, and his answer to the king in this last verse is kind of interesting. I mean, if you think back on his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, it's generally a pretty cordial relationship. Uh, but he seems rather rude and curt to Belshazzar here, doesn't he? I don't really want your stuff, but I'll still answer your question. Uh, and why is that? I think we could probably postulate a few things. Maybe it's just that he's a 70- or 5-year-old man, and he's getting a little bit cranky in his old age. Or maybe it's that Nebuchadnezzar had put him in a high position, and Belshazzar seems to have totally forgot about him. Or maybe it's just that Daniel knows that it's time for Babylon to fall, and so why have pleasantries? Let's dispose of this and just get it over with. I don't know exactly, but what he does say gives us an insight into what Daniel wants Belshazzar to get out of this. He says, look, what I'm going to tell you is not my wisdom. So don't give me stuff. This comes from God. And that is what you need. We've kind of touched on this in, in sort of an antithetical way already. But, but when we look at the wisdom of the world, what we need to realize is that without the wisdom of God, that wisdom is worthless. We need God's word. We need God to speak into our life. We need God to speak into our moments. We need God to speak into the way our culture acts. We need God's word. Now, someone might say, okay, but is the Bible really trustworthy? <laughs> How can God's word be the final authority on these things? The Bible, you Christians seem to like that book, but I mean, I read on Wikipedia that it's mostly a compilation of people, stories transmitted over thousands of years. How can you trust that? I think this, this story actually of Daniel chapter five is a really good example to show you the trustworthiness of the Bible. Uh, for years and years, uh, centuries in fact, um, this text of the Bible from chapter 5 of Daniel was criticized by modern scholars. Uh, they said there's no way that this text can be true at all. Uh, it must be made up. It must be something that the Jews made up in probably the first century BC or something like that. And the reason was, we know that the final king of Babylon before Babylon fell was a man named Nabonidus. Uh, Nabonidus was about four kings after Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabonidus is not mentioned in this text. 
Right? Belshazzar is named as the king of Babylon before Babylon falls at the end of this text. So very obviously, since we know Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon and Belshazzar is said to be the last king of Babylon in the Bible, the Bible is wrong. You guys are all morons for believing it. You should be atheists. Until, uh, actually only a short while ago, archaeology uncovered some descriptions of Belshazzar. A man who was put on the throne of Babylon right before it fell by his father, Nabonidus, who left the kingdom to go run away from the Medio Persians who were coming in. And so the Bible actually had this all right the entire time, even to the point where it says that Belshazzar says to Daniel, You can be third in command in my kingdom. Why? Because Belshazzar is only second in command. That's the highest he can give him. For thousands of years, the Bible had this right, and modern scholarship didn't. So who are you going to trust? The book that has been proven time and time again to be true about history, even when modern scholarship says it's wrong? Or the modern scholarship that is constantly shifting and shaping itself based on what it can find? God's word is trustworthy. But let's make this a little bit more personal for you and how you need that trustworthy word in your life. Do you believe the Bible is what you need? How quick are you to run to it when the problems of your life show their ugly faces? Would you rather go to the internet or a therapist or a psychiatrist or a drug or an escape, like we said in point one? Or would you run to God's word? Would you pray the Psalms every day rather than popping a pill every day? Would you read the stories of God's faithfulness when you're worried that he's not going to be faithful? Do we run to God's word to find the power that goes beyond understanding? I think many of us don't. It's not like we're opening our Koran daily to read from that, but are we actually opening our Bible daily to read from it? Two weeks ago was Reformation Sunday, and what we tried to bring out as the main point of Reformation Sunday is that the Reformation and really Lutheran theology is not about necessarily grace alone as much as it is about Scripture alone. That what makes a Lutheran a Lutheran is they love the Bible. They love the Scripture. They read the Scripture. They meditate on the Scripture. They pray the Scripture. They define their life by the Scriptures. That's what we're going for. That's what our heritage is. That's what we pray God makes us to be. But can that be said about us? Or are we people who call ourselves Christians? And though we have a book that should define our whole life, we leave it on the shelf. We need God's word. Or how about this? Are there parts of God's word as you read it that you don't really like? You want it to be God's word insofar as it already agrees with your words. And when it gets to the parts that you don't really like, you sort of ignore those ones. Yeah, that's, that's good. I know that's what it says, but I kind of want to do this instead. Or you hear me preach from God's word and you're challenged by the things that I say from God's word. But you say, you know what? It's just his opinion. It's not my problem. I get to do my own Christianity. Like honest evaluation, just no offense, that's not Christianity. That is an imaginary, an imaginary story that you have told yourself and called it Christianity. Christianity is you love God's word and you listen to it. You believe it. And far too much of cultural Christianity in this country and in other places in the West is built on traditions, not on God's word. That's not to say traditions are bad, but traditions are not the essence of what we believe. We need God's word. It's not about who's preaching it or what the name of the church is 
or all the practices that go along with being a church. It's about do they preach God's word and do we love it? And if we expect our congregation to exist past this decade, it'll be because we love God's word. Because God's word is coming out of our mouths. It is encouraging one another. You need God's word. So where do you start? If you're struggling with this, pray eight verses of Psalm 119 every day for a year. It will change your life. I guarantee it. Pray eight verses of Psalm 119 every day for a year, and it will change your life. Now, Daniel, after saying, this is a message from God, you need God's word, Belshazzar, he tells him what the writing on the wall means. So back to the text. Daniel says, your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those who he wanted to spare, he spared. Those who wanted, he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets of his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you do not honor the God who holds in your hand, in his hand, your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand to write the inscription. So he identifies Belshazzar's problem, which is pride, right? I mean, ultimately it's pride. It shows itself in the use of the goblets from the articles of the temple. And it, it shows itself in how he stands up against God. But that's frankly, the root issue here is pride. And this is something that I think modern people struggle with in a profound way because, especially in the West, we are so individualized, we think so much of ourselves rather than the whole, that we start to think that the only person who really matters in the world is me. And then anything that's good that's happened in my life, it's because I'm really great, and everything that's bad that happened in my life is somebody else's problem. It's pride. And pride shows itself in a hundred different ways, but let me give you just a couple. In our life, pride shows itself in superiority. This is probably the easiest way to see pride. Uh, we see pride that in uh, people who think themselves to be better than other people. They're pounding their chest and proclaiming their accomplishments, thinking themselves more highly than they ought. That's probably the easiest way to see it. But you know that the antithesis of this is also pride. A feeling of inferiority is actually pride. The feeling that I'm not good enough, nobody likes me, I don't have any friends, is pride. Because what are you doing? You're focusing on yourself. It's all about you. It's all about you and your happiness. And if nobody likes me, then poor you, right? There are other ways it shows up. You can go to the next slide, please. Maybe it didn't. Yeah, keep going. One more. Worry. Pride shows itself in worry. Uh, Worry only comes when you start to think that you know the way the world should work. And it doesn't seem to be working that way. You think of yourself so highly that you think that you know the world, and when it doesn't work that way, you start to be bothered by it. Give me another one. Pride shows itself in anger at others. Like if you're angry at another person, it's because deep down you think to yourself, I would never do that. I'm so great. I would never be that faithless, that thoughtless, that unkind. 
me another one. Pride shows itself in group identities. We put ourselves in the in crowd, whatever that is, whether it's because of our theological background or our racial background or our age or our social and economic status, whatever it is, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. One more. Boredom. You get this one? Pride shows itself in boredom because pride is me saying that the world is not good enough for me. What God has given me to make me happy is not good enough for me. So you can see, and there are a hundred other ways that this shows up, but, but pride is, is all of our problems. It's exactly what Belshazzar dealt with. It's exactly what I deal with. It's exactly what you deal with. Now, Belshazzar, of course, has the kingdom taken from him as a result, right? Back into the text. Daniel announces the judgment by saying, this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel parson. Here's what those words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign, has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. In Paris, your uh, kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Well, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over his kingdom at the age of 62. So the pride of Belshazzar that showed itself in the hatred of God's things the hatred of God himself, led to the destruction of his kingdom. But it does not lead to the destruction of your kingdom. Because that pride that you have, that desire to escape from all the evil that is around you in a substance, in your accomplishments, or in control of the world, has been forgiven. So repent. Maybe to wrap this up, I'll say this. There are only two other places in the Bible where the phrase finger of God shows up. Uh, One of those is in Deuteronomy 9, uh, where God is giving the Ten Commandments to his people. He says that he wrote on the tablets of stone the Ten Commandments with his finger. And in Luke 11, Jesus announces to his disciples that if he drives out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. Smash those two things together for a minute and and figure out what they're saying. From Deuteronomy 9, the finger of God brings the word of God to his people. And from Luke 11, Jesus' words, the finger of God brings in the kingdom of God. How does the kingdom of God come? By the word of God. And is that not what is embodied in the scene? This beautiful picture, you should look it up because I I realize you can't probably see it on the screen very well. You should look up John Martin's Belshazzar's Feast. It's an amazing piece of artwork as you just think about this text. In this moment, what is happening? The world is falling apart. And yet people are trying to escape that reality by drowning themselves in pleasure, in comfort, in accomplishments, and in control. And yet God's word stands clearly calling out sin and telling what the future holds. And that's what you have to In this world of darkness, this world of evil, our Babylon, God's word still stands. And you can believe it. It is true. It has stood the test of time and it promises you that this life is not all that there is. That though kingdoms may rise and fall, the kingdom of God will never fall. To the extent to which we hold on to the way that that kingdom comes through God's word given to us, we will see it come to its fulfillment when Jesus comes back. So pray for God's word. Pray Psalm 119. 
Speak it to one another. Believe it. Live by it. It is our only hope in Babylon. And let's pray right now. Jesus, thank you for giving us your word. As we stand in the darkness of our present age, lead us to hold on to it, to love it, to pray it, to speak it to one another, to memorize it, to open our Bible regularly, to bring the kingdom in. God, as kingdoms rise and fall around us, as we may worry about our nation or other nations on earth, we know that your kingdom stands in the face of all of them and that your word continues to strengthen your church where your kingdom is present with that word, with water and baptism, and with bread and wine, your body and blood. We ask that you would bless us with strength of faith and with encouragement from one another. 